welcome to Footy Time. It is September the 12th, 2022, and we've just had week two of the semi-final weekend of the AFL final series. And uh, for Daniel Andrews and myself, it is a time of mourning as the D's bow out for 2022. How are you feeling, Dan? Yeah, a little flat. It was a little bit harder to get up for that uh, Saturday night game, Collingwood and Frio. And uh, yeah, I guess just coming to the realisation of what had happened, we'll talk a bit more about it. But I suppose in some ways the writing was on the wall that 2022 probably wasn't going to be Melbourne's year, but yeah, I guess it, the end came a little quicker than we might have thought. Yeah, yeah, it's been a bit of a shock and we'll definitely get into all of that. Uh, but yeah, I think we're still processing that one a bit. Uh, there will be, obviously, this will be a bit of therapy for Dan and I, but we've also got some other games, to cover. we've got one other game to cover, so without any further ado, we'll get stuck right into it. Uh, Friday night was that game between the second-seeded Melbourne versus the sixth-seeded Brisbane. Take it away, Dan. All right, let's jump into it. So Melbourne and Brisbane at the MCG facing off for the third time this year. So the first quarter, it was Melbourne with the quick start, finding space, getting the ball on quickly, and uh, doing really well out of stoppages. And their small forwards in particular, Neil Bullen and uh, Spargo, look to be putting on lots of pressure, which was a a hallmark for Melbourne when they're doing things well. Uh, Also, they got seven marks inside 50 in that first quarter, Mm. which was uh, a bit of a surprise. Yeah, maybe a season high Um, for the first quarter. Yeah, it could have been. So that was There was a few good signs for Melbourne in that first quarter, but Brisbane did manage to get a late goal back uh, to Cameron to even things up a little bit. So Melbourne was slightly inaccurate, 3-6-24. Brisbane did have a couple of chances themselves, and they were 1-3-9. How did you see this first quarter, Johnny? I thought it was a good start by the Ds. It was another sort of statement start. Um, Obviously not quite as clinical in front of goal as they would have liked, but uh, they were bringing the pressure, getting some good entries. As you said, Neil Bullen was, was getting busy early. Um. No, they looked like they came to play the Ds, and Brisbane maybe a little bit shell-shocked. I don't think they had many entries in their 50 early on. So, yeah, the ascendancy was with Melbourne. Yeah, I imagine the clearance and contest possession was well in Melbourne's favour in this quarter. And, uh, yeah, they were slightly inaccurate. They the Most of the shots they missed were tricky shots, but, uh, mm. yeah, I suppose you would have liked them to have gotten at least one more of those. Yeah, all right, let's jump into the second quarter. So Brisbane managed to turn it into a bit more of an arm wrestle in the second quarter. Melbourne had a lot less flow to their game. Uh, so this meant that it was difficult for Melbourne to find space, but similarly so for Brisbane. Uh, and it was really just a couple of uh, game-breaking moments from Cozzy getting a couple of great crumbs to get two of Melbourne's three goals. Uh, but the last of these was actually cancelled out by a centre clearance goal just seconds before the siren to Brisbane. So uh, that seemed to be an important goal there because Melbourne had found a way to stretch it out to 28 points, but that uh, last goal on the stroke of half time brought it back to 22, which did sound a little bit more manageable. It was... Another thing of note was that uh, Brayshaw seemed to be doing a bit of a job on Lockie Neal and he didn't really have much influence at all in that first half. No, he didn't. Um, I think... Neil only had three effective possessions in that first half, so he was doing a very good job. So what did you see as the important factors in this second quarter here, Johnny? Yeah, I think um, we continued 
the way we had in the first for the start of it. I think we were still uh, we were still running hard and you know applying good pressure. But I think around about the twenty minute mark of the quarter, we just went into our shell a little bit, and Brisbane were taking the game on a bit more. I think it was when Hipwood kicked that goal on the, from the set shot. I just felt like that's when the momentum was shifting a little bit, and yeah, I thought we were probably fortunate not to have conceded a few more goals late in that quarter. Um, yeah, it was good to have a lead, but it still felt a little bit, a little bit underwhelming. Not, yeah, couldn't quite put my finger yeah, on it. Yeah, it seemed compared to the first quarter, things were starting to get a little bit harder for Melbourne. Like the two of the three goals they got to pick it, as they described there, they were real, like just opportunist goals, something out of nothing yeah. really. So Melbourne wasn't really creating that many dangerous scoring uh, shots in this quarter compared to the first. I think they had, what, nine or ten scoring shots in the first quarter if you include the one that might have gone out on the full. Yeah. Compare that to this quarter, you've halved that at least. So, uh, yeah, although it still looked pretty rosy if Melbourne on the scoreboard, I think the game definitely became more of a 50-50 around the ball in this quarter. Oh, for sure. Yeah, many more clearances for the Lions in this one. All right, let's jump into the second half. So, don't know what uh, Melbourne talked about at halftime, but uh, they came out pretty flat to start mm. this one. There were three goals on the board to the Lions before Melbourne had even blinked, it seemed, and it took them a little while to get their intensity back up a little bit. And that added to the last goal of the previous quarter, was a four-goal run, and I think it might have actually got up to a five- or six-goal run before Melbourne was finally able to get two in a row. A uh, nice set shot to Fritsch from about 50, and then uh, one from general play to Neil Bullen. So that was looking a little better, but uh, there was plenty of red time goals in this game, and Brisbane found another way to get those two goals basically straight back. So more clearance dominance there, helping them there. But uh, yeah, real sort of uh, different pattern in this quarter here, Johnny, with uh, how the goals are being scored and yeah, just, it seemed to have transformed straight after half time. How'd you see it? Yeah, look, Melbourne were inept this quarter. I thought that it was, it was really, it was really worrying. I mean, I felt myself thinking late in that quarter. Usually, if you go up that long in a final with that like playing at that level, uh, you don't win too many finals if you if you've done that. So, um, yeah, it was. I just couldn't put my finger on it. The lines looked like they were first to every ball. Um, I guess early in the game, and as we've seen so much this season, it, it always, the game always seems to shape up looking like a typical Melbourne game, but it just seems to change so quickly. It's, Gradually transforms, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, especially when the other side starts getting pace on the ball and uh, takes it on, takes the risks, uh, keeps it moving. That It gets the ground. I mean, it... It just seemed like Melbourne were panicking. Like they were not, they didn't they had. They lacked a lot of composure, which was really strange for mm. a Premiership team. Yeah, it really was Brisbane being the ones who were able to find a bit more space. And yeah, Melbourne's continuity seemed to be uh, starting to elude them, and anything dangerous was hard to come by for Melbourne. So it ended up being a six goal to two quarter, and uh, even though Melbourne was pretty much winning every stat you would care to mention. It was 8-5 uh, 
uh, sorry, 8-11 to 9-5, and that would be 59 points apiece, so all square going into three-quarter time. But, yeah, the team that had six goals obviously had the momentum going into the last quarter. Yeah, it? look, it, it just seemed like that. Every time it looked like Melbourne could kick away, the Lions would just bring it back. They, Yeah, the place was buzzing when they kicked those two goals late in the third. And, um, yeah, I just thought, I can't remember what if, if that was around the 28-minute mark or something, and... It was very late in the quarter when Melbourne got their last, the last of those two goals. Yeah, yeah. And look, we knew it was going to be a long quarter because there were plenty of goals, but yeah, it just seemed like they reeled it back a little too easily, I thought. Mm, and the same thing happened to end halftime as well. So those three red time goals in the second and third quarter combined really hurt Melbourne yeah. when it looked like they might have actually wrestled back a little bit of the momentum, I suppose. Yeah, and I don't know, maybe, yeah, I mean, look, we have led it three-quarter time a few times and lost this year, but you do wonder if it would have been different if we had that two-goal lead at three-quarter time in this game. We'll never know, but uh, yeah, it's all, um, yeah, it's a game of inches. I mean, <laughs> if you're staying in touch, then you're always a shot to win it. Absolutely. So let's do a brief recap of quarter four here. So it was Melbourne really struggling to get any dangerous forward thrusts going for much of the quarter. And it seemed now that the Lions were harder at the contest, more desperate, and usually first the ball, which was a huge surprise in some ways if you looked at the previous contest from earlier in the year. But uh, it just seemed like the Lions simply wanted it more. Yep. And this eventually led to some late goals as the game seemed to break open for them to the nippy Zach Bailey and Charlie Cameron, which all but sealed the result, but for two late goals to Melbourne. Uh, won a really nice, strong mark to Petty and good set shot there as well. And Langdon got one from the square as well. But uh, it was too little, too late for Melbourne to go down by 13 points here and crash out in straight sets, Johnny. Yeah, brutal, brutal. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it was a very, very devastating way to, to exit the finals. Uh, and in pretty much the same fashion that we've seen a lot of losses from Melbourne this year. It was almost exactly the same pattern, wasn't it? You build the lead, everything is looking pretty good. Not like fantastic, but, you know, no one's doing enough to get on top, not giving the opposition many chances really with their dominance around the ball. Then as soon as the opposition can get a bit more of a 50-50 through the midfield, they're the ones who are taking the game on more. They're the ones that are getting the cleaner looks. Yep. And eventually the damn world just breaks and uh, there was a couple of big holding the ball decisions against Melbourne. I think that might have been in the third quarter. Uh, Rivers and May, I think. Yep. And they were holding the ball and they got goals out of those too. And I guess if, you know, if Melbourne is, if Melbourne's letting in that many inside 50s and, you know, you're not being able to be clean on the way out, eventually the damn world's going to burst. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, it's really well put. I mean, it's um, it was something that sort of stood firm a lot stronger last year, but uh, teams have studied our game plan and they've now identified that if you can do this certain set of things long enough, you stand a chance against Melbourne if you attack. You know, the, the weaknesses are on display now. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting in... Goodwin's uh, post-match press conference where he's talking about Melbourne's vulnerabilities and the fact that your vulnerabilities do get found out in finals. And yep. I guess that was on display for all to see 
But I, I guess it raises the question, uh, you know, could they have done more to address these vulnerabilities until, you know, the final series? So it did seem like in the last four to six weeks, they really didn't change much in terms of the makeup of the side, no. the strategies. Uh, like probably there were some of the more important players banged up and obviously Petrarca is the most obvious those of those, but could they have done things a little differently and would it have mattered? I don't know. Well, I think uh, selection is an interesting one because uh, I didn't feel like Melbourne lost too many games at selection this year, but that doesn't mean that they made all the right decisions in selection. I do sort mm. of wonder if um, early in the season, especially when we were, you know, 10 and 0 uh, through, throughout that period, I do wonder if it might have helped to blood a few more youngsters, maybe give someone like Jacob Van Royen a go, uh, Bailey Laurie, um, or Chandler. I would have liked to have seen a few more games given to him because I actually didn't think he was doing too bad in the game that he played and then had that ridiculous suspension. Yeah. Um, that wasn't great. So I just want, like I know these are small situations, but I just wonder if it was would have been a smarter thing to blood these guys earlier, see what they could possibly do, and maybe they would have been pushing for selection a bit later on. Because if you look at the the three that make up a crucial part of the forward line, Neil Bullen, Spargo, and Pickett, I think Pickett had another good season. We'd admit that, but Spargo and Neil Bullen for. Guys who probably are considered specialist forwards, did we get enough goals out of them? And I just wonder if maybe some complacency set in because their their position was just never under threat. I mean, yeah, I could see that. And like you know, Melbourne were down on the inside fifty tackles this year, and they should be the guys yeah. who are bringing some of that. So, and it's a hard you know position to play for these guys is, you got to be putting in like maximum effort and you're not necessarily getting all the accolades so maybe that is something there that you can point to and say that they weren't as hungry as last year when i guess we'll never know yeah um and there's a little bit of an imbalance i guess with some of these guys in that they are very good workers but maybe not the most clinical in front of goal whereas you've got guys like uh you know bailey fritch and that who are very clinical in front of goal but maybe not the most physical yeah. in the forward line uh, and um, and applying pressure on that. So, I don't know. Look, that's that's going to happen in most forward lines. But, uh, yeah, we just seem to lack a little something there. All right. So, just before I end this recap and we go into a couple of questions, Melbourne had eight more scoring shots, uh, but really they weren't really getting them from very dangerous positions. And uh, ultimately, the forward inefficiency was costly again. So after Tom McDonald went down halfway through the year, I suppose they never quite filled that hole. And uh, it's hard to know what the percentages are in terms of, uh, you know, the delivery slash what's going on up the field versus the forward line and actually making something of these chances. But you got to say that the loss of Tom McDonald in hindsight, and maybe as we're going through the season, it was a huge loss to Melbourne structure and, uh, yeah, I suppose the opposition were able to sort of really sit on Ben Brown thereafter. Well, it was a massive loss to the structure. There's no doubt about that. Uh, we've mentioned countless times what he does bring when he's up and running, Tom McDonald. Uh, his ability to just run defenders ragged and put just, I guess, almost just create space for that forward 50. But, um, yeah, it, 
obviously, like a lot of people, sort of, a lot of the um, the neutral fans who I spoke to today or that I didn't really want to speak to about football, but they asked me, so I had to get into that conversation. Um, you know, it was it's the same simple sort of line. Oh, they missed their chances early. You got to take those chances early. That can be a little bit simplistic sometimes because you know, footy teams work hard. They're trying to take chances, but for for me, it's um. It's about knowing that this team isn't the most deadly accurate in front of goal. And we compensate for that by, I feel, creating more goal-scoring chances. So I kind of felt like in the late in the second and definitely in the third and, and fourth, it was just looking impossible to get looks at goal. Every time we got it in there, we'd even lock it in there and we'd get a stoppage, which was what we need to do. That's part of the game plan. But after that, I got you know someone like Cozzy or Spargo or Sparrow, whatever they'd be picking up the ball, and then in an instant they'd either get tackled or or blocked or smothered. There was just no space to operate in, and that's what I think this team needs is they need to find ways to give those small forwards the best chance to get looks at goal. I mean, I th- I just feel like every one of our small forwards should be getting at least three shots on goal a game, and yeah. I just felt like that just didn't happen enough. In this game, in this season. I don't know. The score sources for Melbourne just seems completely out of whack. We're relying on, you know, scores from stoppage way yep. too much. I don't know what the numbers were on this, but they weren't getting much out of the turnovers, and you can't survive on that. I don't think. No, like the re- it's the reason why these guys don't have space that you're talking about because they're not making anything out of these turnovers. Yeah, that, that's exactly right, and you can throw transition in there. I don't. I just don't see this team scoring from rebound 50, I guess, like from half back at the moment. So it does seem very reliant on stoppage. And yeah, I mean, all it takes is breaking even with Melbourne in the midfield right now, and you seem to have them. So. So is that like, is that a coaching thing? Is it a mentality thing? Are they just not fit enough to be able to actually put in that hard running that you need to actually score? From turnover because like this used to be one of Melbourne's strengths and now it's just gone. Yeah. Like are they setting up to actually uh, you know play this way that you, they're wanting to score from stoppage only? Like surely that can't be the model. Yeah, it, it's really difficult to answer this question in one way. I, I just feel like there's three or four different things off the top of my head here, and fitness is definitely one of them. Uh, there's the the desire, uh, like. What does it? Like, we know that the game plan relies on bringing pressure for four quarters, week in week out. That's hard. <laughs> I mean, that's really hard and not always sustainable. I mean, we've said that this game plan is very taxing. And how do you get up for this to, and go with these repeat efforts, especially when you've just won a flag as well? There's that maybe that mm. kind of, I don't know that one percent less desire and that you're not quite as hungry. Um. Yeah, we talked a lot about last year how important the pressure was and when Melbourne looked their best, the pressure was at its highest. And I think that's one of the things that's been pretty consistent this year, that Melbourne's pressure has been nowhere near as good as 2021. So if you wanted to point to something quite simplistically to why it hasn't worked as well, you can throw all of the you know forward line, back line, fatigue stuff around, but Without that pressure, the game style just simply doesn't work as well. It, it just comes down to that pressure, really. I mean, you can talk about 
it, it all starts from that, really. I mean, I think there was a game in the middle of the year where one of the someone in our in our messenger group said, uh, "We need to get our intercept game back." Well, that comes from pressure. So yeah, and yeah, yeah turnover. Yeah, Melbourne were fantastic with score from turnover last year, and it was one thing that we really needed, especially in this final series, and we just didn't have it. So. Yeah. Um, so, as you said, there are other things. Definitely forward structure. Uh, it would have helped to have a, a, a more dominant key forward to not only clunk marks, but you know, just provide a contest and get it to ground for the small guys to work in. That's another thing, but it really all does start with that ability to apply the pressure long-term, force turnovers, get ourselves the scoring chances. Yeah, so it's a bit of like chicken or the yeah, egg. Like, it is. is is the is the inability to cause pressure the um, the cause or is it the symptom? Yeah. <laughs> so are they unwilling to apply the pressure or are they unable to? Because if they're unable to, then yeah, maybe it's like the cumulative effect of having to do this for forty games in a row. Uh, you know, players are banged up, et cetera, et cetera. But if it's just an inability to actually do that. Well, maybe there's still like a mental aspect to that or, you know, just not being at that same absolute ruthless, you know, peak, I suppose. So I, I guess the pr- the truth is probably more somewhere more in the middle. Yeah. If I had to guess, I would probably say it was the former in terms of just they weren't in a physical state enough of them to be able to actually execute with that really high pressure style. Uh, often enough to actually execute how they want yeah, to. I, I don't know. Where do you I, I on would that? lean towards that one as well, only because you point to the games that we lost and it was working reasonably well until it didn't work. Um, mm. it, it was, uh, it, we it almost seemed to want to build that lead up, I guess. And you, all, you just knew that if you didn't quite take enough chances that we'll get, get run over the top off because it was just, we weren't able to run at the games, and we talk about yeah. loading. But even that. sorry, yeah. even in those first halves, though, like I still don't think the pressure was as no. good as 2021. It, it was better than the second halves, yes. But yeah, I suppose the the drop off there was even more stark. Uh, look, I definitely agree. I don't think in those, yeah, like we were sort of performing adequately, um, building yeah. up a little bit of a lead, but um, we were in games. We were in games. Um, for sure, for but sure. Uh, yeah, I, I think. I definitely think that it had something to do with the physical state that we're in, whether that was niggling injuries, whether it was, I don't know, maybe, maybe the COVID thing during the year. I look, there must have been a whole number of reasons why, but maybe, <laughs> maybe we didn't get the loading uh, regime right this year. Maybe this is a Burjo thing. Maybe, yeah. So when we look back at season 2022 for Melbourne in five or ten years... How do you think it'll be remembered? I guess I know it's hard to yeah. qualify that with, you know, what will happen after this, but just take it as a single season snapshot. How will Melbourne supporters look back at this season, do you reckon? I think Melbourne supporters would generally be happy that we backed up as, with a good home and away season. Um, but ultimately there was something missing this year. And yeah, it, there were just so many warning signs. I mean, losing those three games in the middle of the year, that for me, that was that was so damaging, I thought. It just our aura had really just been taken away from us. And 
yeah, we I think we won six of our last fourteen games. Um, and, yeah, six and, and eight after being that's ten. That's it. Zero. And to be up, I think it was four games where we let it every change and lost. I just think that it doesn't matter which way you look at it. Premiership teams don't really do that. <laughs> So no. <laughs> I think for us and for me, like it's it's been an enjoyable home and away season. It was it's good to follow a team that is it's still a novelty to follow a team that's competitive. But we're gonna <laughs> it's very like, true. You're gonna look at this and the neutrals are gonna look at this and see that yeah, they're not gonna remember Melbourne in this season. Like they're gonna remember, you know, who makes the grand final. And exactly, yeah, yeah. Th- so we're not really the story of this year at all. It was definitely admirable, admirable that they were able to back up the grand final. You know, look what happened to the Bulldogs. And yeah. They basically uh, scraped into the finals and really were never a threat. At least Melbourne was there or thereabouts. They gave themselves a chance. Yes, there were all these things working against them. But I think it says a lot about the group that they were still actually able to win as many games as they did and uh, give themselves a chance, even if it was going to be, you know, a tall hill for them to climb. Yeah, and that does bring me to one question that I had. Um, did the early draw make Melbourne look better than we actually were? Uh, now, look, I don't think we we played some pretty good teams in that first ten games, and a lot of them were finalists from last year. But was it? Did it pad our stats a little bit? I think it, there's no question about it. Even if you dig a little bit deeper into a lot of those games, even though Melbourne were winning, they weren't necessarily playing fantastically in all those games. They were doing enough to win, yeah. and you know some games were better than others. But if you looked at the final eight from this uh, season, only two of the uh, eight, uh, two of the ten teams we played finished in that top eight from that ten round stretch there. So uh, I think it definitely gave people a false perception of how good Melbourne were actually going at that point. And it definitely papered over some of the cracks, not for everyone. Mm. There were a lot of people, at least some people in the media talking about how Melbourne were only going, you know, 70% or 80% of what they were capable of. And I think there's no doubt that uh, that was the case. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Uh, And yeah, I'm not sure what the reasons were for that, but we were getting the job done and you were kind of waiting for them to, you know, turn it up a few gears. Uh, yeah, look, it just didn't didn't really eventuate. Um, but there were some highlights, though, weren't oh, there? Oh, definitely. Like, it makes it makes the perform the two performances against Brisbane, where they absolutely smashed them by ten goals. The away win against Port Adelaide was very yep. good. The away win against Frio. Yep. It almost seemed like Melbourne needed you know, these little beacons to actually get themselves up and go like full throttle for a game when everyone was starting to doubt them, that was enough to get them up. But they just didn't have enough to actually do that, you know, more consistently. You could also look at this, though, on the flip side. You could say, does Melbourne's second half of the year draw make them look worse than they actually are? Because that was a... When you look back at it, that's a horror draw. It was draw. a hard draw. That is an absolute <laughs> horror draw. Yeah. Plenty of six-day breaks. A lot of <laughs> games where we would uh, we would pretty much end up coming off a big-time game. Like, I'm thinking of the Adelaide game that we was bruising and we ended up playing Geelong and they'd just beaten North and had a pretty much a training run. There were a lot of situations like that, I found, in the second half of the season. And we were basically playing finals early. So, 
yeah. yeah. Did that make us look a bit worse than we were? Maybe, maybe. I wonder what would have happened if we actually switched it around. We had all our hard games in the first half of the season and the easier draw in the second half of the season. Maybe that might have actually helped Melbourne. They might have not finished as high up no. on the ladder, but they might have actually been able to do a th- few things a little bit differently. Maybe a few guys would have been fresher coming into finals. I don't know. Obviously, it's a hypothetical, but might have made a difference. Well, yeah, looking at these, t- I was thinking that too. I-, I kind of had the opinion that to start a season, you need to bank the wins early, and that's what we did. But I don't know, looking at these teams that are still left, Collingwood, Geelong, Sydney, I mean, they all they all had better second halves of the year, and it's that they've been good on the run-in, I guess, and that maybe that's where I can see. They also, all, they also had a very good draw. They had very good draws. Very few top eight they teams. Very good draws. <laughs> so, uh, but I do wonder yeah. if that second half of the year form maybe counts for a bit more. Maybe the games are weighted in importance. Uh, yeah. Maybe. Like, Melbourne weren't terrible in the second half of the year either, no. but there was just too many of these second half fade outs, I suppose. Um, probably should have done this a little earlier, but we should also talk a little bit about Brisbane yes. before we move off this game. So, um, yeah, how big of a win for Brisbane is this? We talked a little bit last week about how we weren't really won over by uh, the win against the Tigers, yeah. but I think we might feel a little bit differently about this one. So how big of a win was it for the Lions here, Johnny? Yeah, yeah, it was outstanding. I mean, they had been playing, I guess, they were a bit stagnant. And they they turned it on in the second half, and they made some very good changes. Uh, Chris Fagan decided to put Jared Berry on Clayton Oliver, and I, that could have been the move that changed the game. Dan, I mean, Oliver, I think he was pretty, he was very well on top in that first half. I can't remember exactly how many possessions he had, but uh, yeah, Berry put the brakes on and yeah, limited his influence, and that allowed Neil to start winning the footy, and it kind of all just went from there. Another puzzling move was they actually seemed to move Brayshaw off Neil from the first half. I think it might have been Sparrow who went to him in the second half. I think Kane Corns was saying. So that that was a slightly puzzling move, seeing as it seemed to be working quite well in that first half. Yeah, I noticed that as well. I thought it was a, a little bit strange because, yeah, was, like Neil had, yeah, he only had three effective touches in the first half. And, yeah, it didn't look like Gus was – I watched a little bit of it back. It didn't look like he was – standing next to him as much, and Neil's yeah. game improved and he had a lot more of the ball in the second half. So, yeah, yeah, I'm not quite sure. I guess in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, this was kind of the performance that people have been waiting for, to see from Brisbane in the finals for a long time. They've seemed to bring that ruthlessness and uh, they're really hard at it, especially in that second half and really taking the game on, which is kind of their style, but doing it in a way where they were – completely uncompromising really and really getting on top around that midfield when they were winning the ball it was uh getting into much more space and the sort of cleaner looks and I suppose uh as you're talking about Neil had a lot to do with that McCluggage was really good Zorko did some nice yeah. things uh and Bailey as well so yeah they were getting on top around the midfield that's for sure yeah no they ended up looking really good and uh I thought Hipwood played a I guess a defining game as well. He kicked some big time set shots, and uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, I think he was. I think May was with him most of the game. You know, no, no mean feat to get on top of Stephen May. I think he. Yeah, oh well, yeah, he, I think he probably beat him. 
Often Hipwood does get quite a few shots, but it's the accuracy that quite often does cost him. But he did look more confident on the set shot. I don't know whether that's something he's been developing, but yeah, he looked more confident in this game. And he's actually a really good kick from distance. Yeah. So uh, yeah, if he can increase that accuracy uh, more often going forward, he'll definitely be a more dangerous player. Yep, yep, absolutely. And uh, you mentioned Zorko. I thought he, he played a really good game. I thought he was just head down, get the ball, and I think he had 20-something touches, a few clearances. Yeah, he he was actually the one that got the clearance for Archie on the halftime siren goal. And, yeah, just got them up and going. Uh, yeah, got to give him credit. And uh, the leaky backline stood up pretty well as well. I, I didn't see too much of the vulnerabilities there. No. Maybe that was just Melbourne's inability to actually exploit that, yeah. but they seem to be doing quite well there and getting plenty of drive out of that half yeah. back line from Daniel Harris Richards Andrews well. played a really good game, I thought. I mean, Brown didn't really get near it at all. So, yeah, I thought <laughs> Andrews true. was good and he was able to play at his best. And, yeah, it was uh, – they got yeah, they got a lot of good run out and Rich, yeah, yeah, does what he does, picks out teammates, he takes the kick that no one else would take. And, yeah, no, that was, it was really good, really – yeah, they held firm. Yeah, they're definitely more willing to take the ball through the center square than Melbourne, yes. and that's not really any surprise. That's kind of their game style. But when they were winning those 50-50s and just uh, going as quickly as they could and finding those little pockets of space, uh, yeah, it was putting Melbourne's defense under a lot of pressure. So, yeah, it was impressive from Brisbane that they could combine that sort of attacking play with the harder edge around the contest. Yeah, and the, the thing that puzzles me, though, is how they managed to get these clearances when they didn't really have a Ruckman. I mean, uh, it looked like uh, Max was killing Darcy Ford early, but uh, they managed to somehow get back into this and Gorn did not play a good game, I thought. It it was kind of strange, particularly out of the centre clearances. I noticed that there was this pattern where Brisbane had sort of two guys off the back of the... Well, the defensive side of the stoppage. And it must have yeah. happened at least three or four times where it went basically unopposed. I don't know what exactly what happened before it, but it went unopposed to that side of the contest and they just yeah. cleared it super it was easily. It's like they had this backstop or whatever and he just got the quick kick out. Yeah. It was. Yeah. So it might have been pinging around a little bit, but if it went on that side of the contest, which it did quite a few times, uh, then they just got it out so easily because Melbourne didn't have anyone there. Yeah. Yeah. So that's just, yeah. <laughs> Well, there's a lot of things here that I guess Brisbane did well and Melbourne just didn't do well. They were very slow to react to a few things and yeah, no, it was just that. That's the way it is. And Brisbane, yep, thoroughly deserved their win and they're through to the preliminary final. Were there any other questions you had on this one, Dan? Uh, there was yep. one, but it's related to the preview we'll do on the next game. So we'll probably just uh, yep. move on and uh, go to the go to the second game recap. Good idea. So we'll move on to the semi-final played on Saturday night, and that was between Collingwood and Fremantle. So, yeah, Collingwood started with a bang in this one. They kicked the first four goals straight, while the Dockers could only muster up one behind. The Dockers had once again given up an early lead and were playing from behind. They did make an instant response one minute into the second quarter, though, when Lockie Schultz nailed John Noble in a tackle and converted his shot. However, any goals from Frio were instantly answered by the Pies and then some. The halftime score was Collingwood 6-6-42. 
to Frio 2-14. So Frio just couldn't get any time in position of the ball, really. I mean, Collingwood's pressure was just so manic and that didn't let up. Uh, in the second half, Collingwood added two behinds before Griffin Logue put one through to get the fire started for Frio, but out of nowhere, Jack Inovan dobbed one to break the drought. It was really only Collingwood's wastefulness keeping Frio in this game because they'd gone from six straight goals to seven goals 12 then. It was <laughs> insane, really. One goal and 12 behinds from this. There weren't that many hard shots in that. No, there either. weren't. There weren't. It was crazy, crazy turn of events. But when Brody Majacek kicked his second late in the term to put the Pies 40-odd points up, the ethereal Collingwood chant reverberated around the MCG. <laughs> this one was done. Uh, goals to Frederick, Walters, and the retiring David Mundy brought the lead back to respectable 20 points in the end. But the damage was done, and that final margin was possibly flattering for Fremantle, as there was no doubt who the better team was on the night. So, what decided this game? Well, as mentioned earlier, Collingwood really brought the pressure early and just didn't stop. Frio were really overawed. They lacked composure. They just looked a bit stage. There was a lot of stage fright there. Um, but they were just... Collingwood just kept coming. Even Jamie Elliott, who I've never really noted as a pressure forward, he had five tackles inside 50 in this one, Dan. So it's impressive, I think that's yeah. something that yeah, your coach would be really happy to see. Um, the Pies also completely owned the corridor. They just cut it off for Frio, forcing him wide at nearly every opportunity. If the Dockers ever attempted to switch, it was always backwards and across the field. And, you know, that was just Collingwood's ability to press up so much. It, they had nowhere else to go. It also meant much slower ball movement, which the Pies just feast on. And then, as we've seen all year from Collingwood, once they turned the ball over, usually as a result of a long kick forward, they would rebound hard and slice Frio through the middle. So, Dan, I'm going to ask you, who did you think was the best player afield in this game? Oh. Well, I would say the one that probably stood out the most was Crisp going through the midfield. His pace just split the game open. And I suppose for most people, he's never been the most standout player. But some of the runs he was going on through the middle and the space he was getting, and, you know, he's winning plenty of the ball through the midfield as well. They moved him in from the half-back line. And, yeah, he really stood out to me. And it was a game-breaker. What about you? Bingo. That is exactly what I was going to say. I thought this was Jack Crisp's best game for the club, actually. Uh, he only had the 24 touches, but they were all valuable touches. Two goals, 600 metres gain, but most impressively, 29 pressure acts. He was leading the way with the pressure that Collingwood were bringing, and he was everywhere. So there were some good performers. You look on the other side of the of the field, you, know, you got uh, Brayshaw, Sarong. They got up in the 30s for touches, but uh, I thought this was the best yeah, on ground the performance. Definitely. It's pretty handy when you can uh, release Crisp into the midfield and just add Nick Dacos in. That's a nice little it's transition a nice rotation. There. Obviously, Crisp was a very was a very good backman as well, but, you know, they needed more guys in the midfield and he's obviously capable. Yeah. So you, that's one small piece of, uh, you know, their rise this year, but it's not hard to see why Collingwood would have improved so much with that, you know, experienced nucleus, but a lot of young guys doing the job as well. Absolutely. And, yeah, it worked a treat for them. Uh, 
I'm going to ask a few questions here. So the first one is, if you were Frio, did, there's been a bit of talk about certain players possibly leaving, whether it's trades mm. or you know something like you know Rory Lobb going to the Bulldogs or potential capital in a Luke Jackson trade. So I've heard a number of names like uh, Griffin Lowe, uh, Lloyd Meek, uh, who else? Maybe even some murmurings about Sean Darcy. Like, there's been at least five Frio players mentioned when it comes to making way for for uh, the the funds to get Jackson in, I guess. Did this... Yeah, Blake, Blake Akers, Akers as has well. been mentioned. Yeah. Did this possibly unsettle the team, Dan? <laughs> like, on the verge of a final? <laughs> I don't, I don't think so. This has been swirling around for quite a while and I think probably the thing that unsettled them more would have been just the hostility of that Collingwood crowd. Uh, can't remember off the top of my head how many were in there, but the stands looked pretty damn full. Uh, and I think it, more than anything, it was just Collingwood's game style. I think it, they match up really well against Frio. Uh, they beat them earlier mm. in the year as well, smashed them actually in a wet game, but... Uh, I think Collingwood's game style basically perfectly exploits what Freo's try to do with, you know, really controlling it with sort of uh, short, relatively short kicks, just not taking too much risk before they get in their front half. And uh, it just yeah, breaks it open. It really yeah. does. The speed that Collingwood moved the ball from half back, it was yeah. ballistic and like. There was there's when they grab the ball, you can see like there's no doubt in their minds what they're gonna do. Often when, you know, a player grabs the ball at half back, you can almost see him thinking, but there's none no. of that with Collingwood. They're just getting on their bikes as soon as possible. They'll know they know that there's other guys other guys that's gonna be running to support what they're trying to do, and they just go. Yeah. It's bloody hard it, to stop. It is, it is. They've got a lot of dash on that back line. And yeah, it's it's really hard to stop and we've seen them just hang in there in games, in touch, and then they just flick the switch. And it, it's perfect because they're doing it against a fatigued opposition. It's just, it's working perfectly. Um, to the next question, which is on that Magpies back six, actually. Is that back six the best in the competition now? Well, you'd have to say they're outperforming Melbourne's back six at the moment. I suppose... You know, the, the two of the main rivals, uh, some of the teams left in there with Geelong and Sydney. Uh, but in terms of, you know, their ability to both defend and attack out of that back line, they're very, they're very difficult to score against. So they get back in numbers and they, you know, can slice you open going the other way. So if they're not the top, they're definitely close to it. What do you yeah, reckon, Danny? I just think this is the perfect mix. You've got, Darcy Moore and Murphy, who they kill contests, you know, the sort of, you know, the aerial threats. You got Jeremy Howe, who's also an aerial threat, but he intercepts, which is great. You got Maynard, who shuts down our opposition. And then guys like Quayna, who provide a lot of dash. And then Nick Dacos, who is a bit of dash, but he also distributes. So it's really the perfect mix. <laughs> it's got everything covered. And um, it's funny because really, we were talking a lot about Frio's backline in the at the start of the year. This was, I guess, in some ways, a battle of the backlines. Has Collingwood uh, shown that theirs is superior, or that Frio's is not quite as good as what it was cracked up to be? 
Well, I suppose Freire is, is more built on just giving up fewer points. And, you know, through the course of the season, they've still get, given up a lot less points. Yeah. But I suppose it also depends what you're trying to do on offense. The fact that Freire tries to go slower and kind of protects their back half in a way. So, yeah, I'm not sure if you can just look at raw numbers to work out how effective mm. a backline actually is because it is kind of contextual in that way. But I think the way Collingwood does actually fold back and, uh, you know, uses the hard running to get back and then spreads the other way, sort of the offense often is starting from that defense as well. So uh, it's obviously a huge important factor in how they're actually setting up. And, yeah, maybe it's the backline has been a little bit underrated. Yeah, and just the way that um, Collingwood, they just they own the corridor, they go through it, but they also cut it off for the opposition a lot. They don't let them use it. They, it's all about, yeah, they own it and the opposition doesn't. And uh, Yeah, it almost looked like Melbourne of last year, how well they were actually cutting off Rio's yeah. ball movement when they were forced into a slow play. And, you know, most teams are getting pretty good at that now, but... Uh, yeah, Collingwood took it to another level in this game, just giving Frio nothing really and forcing them to go down the line time after time. It seemed like almost every time Frio were going to look to kick back inboard, they just had nothing there. So, yeah, they were forced into into either kicking long or going backwards. It was just, yeah, they weren't able to play their game at all, it seemed. Um, We've got a couple more for this one. Uh. What like what was behind Freo's scoring woes in this game, do you reckon, Dan? Yeah, probably touched on some of the elements already. But uh, I suppose at its core, maybe it's just Freo's game style. Like we've seen when they've been better this year, you know, it's really the speed in the front half that is getting the job yeah. done and I suppose winning it out of clearances. But uh, they're not really a great ball movement team. So I think they're towards the bottom of the ladder in that category. And uh, it really sh- showed up in this game where uh, Collingwood basically just completely blocked their ball movement. And I suppose if you had to put them into one category of like a chaos or control game, you'd say Freo was trying to play a control yeah. game more than a chaos game. And yeah, when, the, when you can take a team's control game off them in a final, it can look really, oh, really yeah. bad. Just ask Geelong of a couple of years ago. It backfires. Uh, so I think that's kind of what happened here. Freo just couldn't get that control style going and uh, they don't really have that ball movement uh, in the way that some other teams do and that all added up to not a lot in terms of uh, dangerous forward half thrusts there for Fremantle. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, a lot of the credit goes to Collingwood, but, uh, yeah, probably one of the reasons why I think that this is actually a really good matchup for Collingwood uh, because Freo's weakness basically plays right into Collingwood's yeah. strength. Um, yeah, I agree. I don't think Freo really is a great ball movement side, but um, I guess what they do bring, especially midfield-wise, they're a very good two-way running side. They're great without the ball, but... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's for sure. I think ball movement—that's definitely something that uh, they would have to look at going to twenty twenty-three. Which is, um, yeah, actually, that's that's another question: is what does Freo's scope for improvement in twenty twenty-three look like? Well, they're probably going to have to look at the way they transition the ball across the field. 
I do worry a little bit about them though because like they're losing basically their best forward in Rory Love, mm. a couple of other guys around the edges. Obviously, a lot of their guys are young and they will get better, but uh, I'm not sure it's going to be a linear progression here for Fremantle. They kind of bobbed up into the finals after being, you know, around the mark in 2021, but just falling short. I'm just not quite sure how quickly they're going to spike from here or even whether they will at all in the next couple of years. Like to be able to, uh, you know, take the next step, I think they need these some of these guys they're losing and they need some tall forwards they can rely yeah. on. Yeah. Uh, I'm also not sure if it's going to be a linear progression for Frio. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I like them, but I, I can see them stepping back next year. Uh, they've got... A lot of guys that he formed a big part of their success this year are either out of contract this year or they're out of contract next year. So, and they're looking to bring in. Well, it seems like they're looking to bring in Luke Jackson. How's that going to affect uh, their salary cap and whether they're able to hang on to a lot of these guys? Because that's. It seems like this is a team where, as a unit, they work really well together. And I just wonder if losing a few of these guys, like an Acres or. Uh, you know, I guess a lob or whatever, like if they were to lose a few of these guys, how much would that change the identity of it? I'm not sure. It just seems like, um, yeah, it seems like it could change quickly for them. Uh, it does seem strange for a team that's sort of on the rise to be talking about losing so many yeah. players. When's the last time something like that's happened? Maybe like Collingwood when they weren't looking too bad, but that was kind of an unforced error by you know, salary yeah. cap issues. I don't... Do you remember not, anything similar not, happening? A bit of an exodus from, you know, an up-and-coming finals team? Not, not really, because, yeah, the age profile of this team is still quite young, and, yeah, that that's really odd. Like, you would think that they would have a few of these guys locked away, which they have made a few re-signings this year, which has been good. Uh, I think uh, Alex Pierce was one of them. And, yeah, they've got a few others to go, but... Uh, yeah, even guys like Will Brody, who's had a fantastic season, I don't know if he's got a new contract yet. Um, so, mm. yeah, these these guys are pretty important. And, uh, yeah, I just wonder. Do you think this is like, do you think this is a WA thing though? Like, do these guys not want to be playing footy in WA or is it is it not quite that simple? Well, that's actually a good question. I mean, Lob's from Victoria, isn't he? Yeah, I think he is. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm not sure. Like maybe, um, yeah, maybe COVID has made people realise that uh, it's the, the go home factor is a bit more prevalent, and that goes for Luke Jackson as well. Maybe they want to be closer to family and friends, and yeah, ma- maybe that's just a, more of a thing. Whereas in the past, uh, it was easier to I don't know up sticks and live life in a new state. Not, not sure, but yeah. I mean, that could be the case with a few of these guys. Maybe, yeah. I don't know. I guess it's always a tricky thing for interstate teams, especially the ones who aren't as big. Freo is a pretty big team, but, you know, just look at what Gold Coast has had to go through, GWS. I guess they're the extreme examples. But, yeah, like how long has Freo been trying to get a key forward other than yeah. Roy Lobb, you know? And they just haven't been able to do it. So I guess it's not really a level playing field in some ways for these interstate clubs. Uh, And, you know, sometimes they do get the advantage of the go-home factor in their direction. But I think on the whole, 
it's harder to, you know, maintain your list, I suppose, and, you know, build a premiership list, say, if you're an interstate team compared to a Melbourne team. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's fair enough, especially if you're travelling every second week. I mean, it's it's a different kettle of fish, really. But, um, yeah, that that is a big... I guess that's that's a big challenge that they've got to they've got to nail some of these uh, some of these players down to new contracts and they've got to do something big at the trade table and we, there is a chance that that could involve Luke Jackson but yeah is that the answer I've, I've never really been convinced that Jackson is the answer if they're looking for a forward but yeah it does feel like they've been looking for a forward for a while yeah I guess with the Luke Jackson thing. I guess it's a lot on his potential, yeah. obviously. They're sort of hoping he's just going to become this sort of unicorn-type player that, you know, becomes the best Ruckman and all these sorts of things and, you know, maybe kicks a few more goals. But, yeah, I don't know. It's a lot of stock to put in someone who has been good, but, you know, there's no guarantees no. in football. Like, guys have been signed to long contracts before and very little has come of it. Like, I don't think that would happen with Luke Jackson, but, but it, could. it does seem like all of this is built on a perception of what Luke Jackson could be, not what he is. Yeah, it just doesn't seem like one of those smart decisions you'd make if you're building a, a list, um, especially... Especially because they've already got yeah, a good rough exactly. right? And, yeah, it just makes you wonder, I mean, is that... Is that the way to go? Is that the best thing to do is to tie up all your capital in one player? I mean, we've seen many times what that's done uh, for many other teams, but yeah. And even just putting all your stock in a Ruckman, like do Ruckmans really, does a good Ruckman really win you a premiership? Obviously, it's good to have a good one, but I think if you ask most AFL experts, they would say that, they wouldn't necessarily be tying up all their capital in that part of the ground. No, no, exactly. Which is maybe why uh, the Grundy thing doesn't quite sit well with me for Melbourne. But uh, <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Look, exactly. That's exactly right. Um, now, couple more. So, how has Craig McRae built a finals winning style so quickly? Hmm. Interesting question. I think it did definitely help the work that Buckley had done, you know, really drilling them defensively. But I suppose, I don't know, somehow he's just built like the ultimate belief in what they're doing. And it must not be that complicated of a plan for them to be able to, you know, get all this going so quickly and just be so in sync with it. Like, I think it is a pretty basic plan when you, when you, try and put it down and we probably don't know all the ins and outs but essentially they fold back and they win the ball back and they run like hell and they're going to be looking for guys running in support and when they don't have their ball they're putting on a heap of pressure and uh you know getting ready to pressure the guy who's receiving it so it doesn't sound like the most complicated game plan but i think a lot of what Craig McCraig has done is really just built up the players to basically believe in what they're doing, believe in themselves, and just have a better understanding for how the game actually works and transitions between different periods. They've been the masters of when to go 
and uh, you know when to just hang in and yeah they've been the ultimate team this year they have they have and yeah I think it's definitely a belief thing playing on instincts not sweating the small stuff I think that's a big one because uh, you see a lot of teams just overthink it and maybe that was a vic- maybe Melbourne were a victim of that this year just uh, getting caught in two minds and yeah I think it's good when it's simple and uh, yeah do, do you think it is a, get a simple game style, though? Like, are we, are we think, oversimplifying uh, yeah, it? Yeah, look, I think that from the outside looking in, there's not much to it. But to implement, I don't think... I don't think... I, I think you still need to be a smart footballer to implement it. But Because um, I just... I used to find people say... Some people used to say that about Richmond. They used to say, oh, there, there's not much to their style. And I thought... No way. That that's that's a complex style like to implement. <laughs> yeah. That. Now that seems a lot more complex yeah. than this. I I'm sure there's more to it than we can see, but from the outside looking in, it doesn't look like the most complicated. I think system. um the the only real complex part of it is the execution and the the reaction time and just thinking quick. I think that's what they do very well, but it's probably not the most uh, varied style, really. So do you think that has helped them then to actually bring it on more quickly? Because obviously they weren't doing this when Buck Yeah, I think there. it has. I think it definitely has. And it's given some of these forwards a lot more looks at goal, which I think they like. And, yeah, that they those forwards really look like they're relishing what's happening at the moment, getting those chances that they're getting. Uh, so if this, is, if, if this is an early evolution of the game plan then, is there a chance we'll see something more complex next season or would you expect them to roll out something pretty similar? That's really, really, yeah, that's a very good question. I think that this game plan, or this will get analysed a lot by opposition teams <laughs> and I do think it is one of those situations they may have to adapt or die um, because, yeah, I, I just feel like if you give opposition coaches a whole off-season to prepare for stuff, they can do... Yeah, there's a lot of things you can do. You can a lot of things you can do. Uh, I don't know exactly what those things are, but maybe it, there's just something that involves slowing the game down, maybe playing more tempo footy, or maybe throwing more numbers back. I'm, I'm not sure. It could be anything. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely a lot easier to implement, and I think they will have to... Yeah, they'll have to be innovative again. To, to make a top four again. Yeah, you always got to keep tweaking. and But, yeah, it's been super impressive from Collingwood this year. I know we were pretty critical yep. of them last year, and I think with good reason, but uh, they've found a way to turn they have. around very quickly, and that's very They admirable. have, and it's been sensational. Now, what is the best way to counteract Collingwood's game style? <laughs> that's the last question. <laughs> uh, well, in theory, well... I'm actually not really sure what the best way to counteract it is. So maybe we can throw this to you in a bit, Johnny, but, you know, tagging some of the guys who get this stuff started would be a good place to start. You know, Nick Dacos uh, through the middle, uh, Jordan Degoe is probably the the one you'd want to tag. But they've just got so many guys who are all doing the same thing. So, like, it almost feels like if you try and stop one, then, you know, another guy is just going to bob up and maybe that's more dependent on where on the ground this is, but you would think that slowing the game down would actually help you, but that's almost what Freo tried to do, and look what happened to them. So, yeah. like, I think I think it has to start with pressure, right? Yeah. Like, 
I, I'm really actually not sure how I would devise a game strategy against this. Probably something I need to think a bit more about. Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, it's really, really tough at the moment to see how you can stop this. I think anything you can do to slow it down is probably going to help. I think if you can frustrate him a bit, maybe it would involve playing a complete control game and just holding onto the ball and frustrating him and even the crowd getting restless and booing you. Maybe that's what it'll take. And it'll take keeping the ball off Collingwood to see it. And the only time they get it yeah, is I from a stagnant position. That's the only thing I can think of. Yeah. Maybe, like, I think I can see what you're saying there with the control, but I think that still does play into Collingwood's hands a little bit because when you do turn it over, it's probably going to be in a dangerous position. If you could get on top of through around the stoppages a yeah. lot and, you know, control the game that way, play it more in your front half and actually have, you know, efficiency going in there or at least, you know, make yourselves dangerous enough to sort of keep Collingwood a little bit more accountable, then, you know, maybe they wouldn't quite have as many chances to go back down the other end and cause problems. And I think that's almost what happened in the first half between Melbourne and Collingwood the last time they played in that first half where Melbourne was basically controlling everything, dominating every stat. They had so many chances. But even then, Collingwood could get out the back and score yeah. some goals. But there was the, the chances were very far, few and far between. So if I was playing Collingwood, I think that would be at the top of my list. Just try and play the game in your front half and reduce the chance of them transitioning quickly, pressuring that ball carrier as much as possible. But it's a very hard uh, style to execute and it relies on you winning a lot more of the ball than they are through the middle. So definitely easier said than done. Well, maybe maybe that's another thing. Maybe you need to get into a shootout with them. Maybe you need to just be playing very high up the ground and uh, just going for broke and don't worry if they score, just try and score more. Well, yeah, that's that's not as silly as it sounds, I reckon, because, you know, they don't have the most uh, dangerous players in that forward line. They do have some very good ones. Uh, Jamie yeah. Elliott, I think, is probably the most dangerous. But, uh, you know, if you were Brisbane, I could see Chris Fagan basically saying, you know, we can score more than them. Let's go out there. Let's be hard at it and uh, let's open the game up. I think maybe a matchup like that actually would be tricky for Cody. Yeah, maybe. Maybe, I mean, yeah, because they seem to score just enough at the moment. Something's got to change. Something's got to change. Maybe it's not about playing so conservative and, and trying to slow them down. Maybe just go for broke and not fear their scoring power or their, their dash. Just just bring it right back to them. Yeah, well, I guess that's kind of what won Geelong the first qualifying final in that last quarter. They did try and attack more. And for whatever reason, they were able to hold up defensively while they did that. And they were able to kick the four goals in that last quarter they needed to win. 